All right, well, we're gonna go ahead and get started. Um, I will uh, just give you a brief introduction for those of you who don't know me. Um, I'm a pastor here at, at Inner City, and also I'm assistant professor of biblical counseling over at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. So um, I usually teach about one class per semester in counseling. We just became a training center, our church and seminary, about a year or two ago. So we're um, um, not licensed, but we're recognized by ACBC as a training center. So we can uh, certify people who want to um, get certified in the in the biblical counseling sort of way, not in the, the mentally incapacitated type of way. But um, so we have a uh, we have a couple of tracks. Um, you can find more out more about this online, but on our webs on our seminary website. But if you were working towards a master of divinity, then you can take biblical counseling as a concentration and be certified with ACBC by the time you graduate. So that's kind of the longer road. It's a deeper dive um, into counseling. Um, so I'd, I'd commend that to you if that's something that you think you could use in ministry down the road. If you're not getting a Master of Divinity, we have a cer certification track, which basically just allows you to get certified with ACBC. Um, and uh, that's a two-year process. It's pretty rigorous. Um, so just to give you an idea, there are 10,000 people at somewhere in the training process of getting certified. 10,000 people and only 300 get certified a year. So what that tells you is a lot of people end up getting stalled out at the really hard phase, which is the exam phase. So we try to help you through that whole process. Um, <laughs> someone just had conviction. We, should we have a, you know, an invitation right now? Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't calling out anybody in spe specifically, but... Um, but but it's a really difficult process. We try to help you through that process. But um, one of the things is one of the reasons not everyone gets um, to the the actual certification is some they're weeding out people who just don't have good theology. They want to make sure they're on the same page, or they don't have the work ethic or something like that. Other cases there are just life circumstances that come up and it just takes time. So um, they give you like a four-year window to finish the whole process. Again, we're, we're going to try to equip you with all the tools that you need to, to do that. If that's something that interests you, I'd love to talk to you about that. We have a new round of training starting next January, um, so you can already start registering for that at our seminary. So seminary sounds like, oh, man, I don't know if I can handle that. But really, they're, they're kind of like college-level type classes. Um, certainly, they're, they're, we try to keep the requirements similar to what a seminary class would be, but um, if you're interested in that, I'd love to talk, talk more about that. Um, all right, and also, just to throw in another plug for that, you might not have come for that purpose, but, um, but that's what I do, so I, I'm, I'm going to tell you about that. Um, also, it's the cheapest kind of training you can get around, so hopefully cheap doesn't mean um, not valuable, but it's uh, if you compare it to online training or uh, even there are some free trainings, uh, you still have to pay for ACBC to grade your exams and you also have to pay your fellow, your supervisor, to supervise you during the counseling process, which costs another $750. If you've got a master's level in theology, you can get the whole thing for 660 through our seminary. So um, I keep telling... Um, Pastor Ben, the dean of our seminary, I think we might be charging a little too much, too little, um, but I think it's it's good. We want to serve people in our area. 
So um, we'd love to have you if you're interested in that. Or if you know people in your church, we had a church in our area who sent um, five or six people from their church, paid for it with the church's finances to help get these people trained, and they've been really, really good. Um, so, all right, let me, uh, oh, one other thing, we just started a counseling center in April. I'm the director of the counseling center. Um, we have six counselors for training some more, and we're in the process of training some more um, through the same certification process that I'm talking about. And so it's a really exciting thing for, for me to be a part of. And um, we're, we're using it to help people outside of our church, so area churches and also um, even unbelievers, non-churched kind of people. We certainly offer counseling for people in our church, but we don't require them to go through our counseling center. We just counsel them any time of the week that they need it. All right, so uh, we want to focus on conflict resolution, and particularly in the marriage relationship. Um, conflict results from sin and selfishness. It's part of um, it's part of living in a sin cursed world. There was no conflict prior to the fall, right? Um, and it's it, it often comes from one or both parties saying, I must get my way. So think about it in a business relationship, thinking about it between two nations, think about it between two drivers on the road. Um, you see this online when someone has an opinion and someone else has an opposing opinion. You see it at work, you see it at home, you see it in churches, you see it whenever there's a rivalry. So I could ask for your favorite college football team and if it's not Michigan, I would condemn you and look down on you and sneer at you and things like that. But that, that rivalry starts to show up, right? When we have these athletic interests, desires um, could come over um, your favorite UFC fighter or two guys fighting over the same girl. I mean, conflict is as old as Cain, right? He's a rival actually for something good, wasn't he? He wanted God's approval that he didn't get like his brother got. Um, he lost and ended up killing his brother as a result. But conflicts actually go back even farther than Cain, of course, right? With Adam and even before that, Satan. Satan saying, I must have it my way. Um, he, he was a rival for power. And when he couldn't have it, he turned away. And so this afternoon, we want to consider how the flipping, so kind of taking what Grant Castleberry was talking about this afternoon, and kind of flipping these gender roles contributes to marriage conflicts. And then more specifically, how, how we can make sure that we're shaped in the right way when we think about our own marriages and then how we can help other people as well. And so the first thing that I think would be helpful for us to consider is egalitarianism. And one of the um, helpful resources is the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, both Gavin Peacock, Gavin Peacock is still on the council. Uh, he's like international outreach responsible for that. And then Grant Castleberry, who spoke here in this first afternoon general session, he uh, used to be on the council. I forget what his role was, but he, he no longer is. But um, so anyway, it's a great resource for you. Lots of um, evangelical minds came together. Think about, okay, let's make sure we can define these things, what's going on in our culture. And so I'm taking this definition from them or explanation. God created male and female as equal in all respects is what egalitarians would say. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 make no distinction between woman and man insofar as both are equally made in God's image. So if we stopped there, we're like, yep, we love that. Um, they are equally made in God's image. Ontology is how that's referred to. Or 
Uh, and, so that not just or, <laughs> or is not the word there, and both are given the responsibility to rule over his creation. So not only ontological equality, but functional. So there's, well, we'll get into this more, but, but as far as ruling over creation, it's both persons equally. That's egalitarian. Of course, that shows up in the marriage relationships when um, a wife is unwilling to submit to her husband, when a husband is unwilling to lead. And, um, and so um, we're gonna, we'll, we'll talk about what this looks like. But they, they will suggest that Adam and Eve were given functional equality, that they had the same roles, and they find illustrations of equality between man and woman throughout the Bible, like with female leadership in the Old Testament. So they'll use examples to that to say, see, females were also leading. Proverbs 31 woman, who seems to be a, a very driven kind of person, accomplishing much good. Participation and uh, ladies participating in the ministry of Jesus and, and in the early church and so on. And so they'll use all those as, from their perspective, proofs of why this, this is actually a biblical approach. So obviously, you can see in the way that I'm describing it, I don't think it is. Um, conversely, and uh, Grant Castleberry talked about this, um, the other view is called complementarianism. That is that God created male and female equal in dignity, value, essence, and human nature. So if we were to stop there, we would say these two agree, right? They both say that man and woman are equal Equally made in his image. Equally made in his image. Okay, but then complementarians would distinguish themselves from egalitarians by saying, but also distinct in role whereby the male was given the responsibility of loving authority over the female, and the female was to offer willing, glad-hearted, and submissive assistance to the man. So let's turn to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. You probably... You know, like, man, I'm only halfway through the conference, not even, and we we'll just keep going back to the same passage. Um, there's a reason for that. Th- these are foundational truths that are, um, you know, that, that we must understand and, and be able to teach to other people. Um, and what we see here in these verses is that most fundamentally, men and women equally bear the image of God. So verse 26, Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So, uh, let's see, I guess I don't have the definition up there for you, but Dr. McCune... Um, my theology professor here at Detroit, um, he defined the image of God as man's personal, spiritual, and moral resemblance to God. Man's personal, spiritual, and moral resemblance to God. That is that we replicate the infinite God in a finite level in these areas which are uh, connected to his communicable attributes. Those are the ones that we can mimic. There are, there are lots of attributes of God that we cannot mimic um, can you think of any? Okay, infinity. We we did have a beginning. Okay, almighty or all-powerful, right? All-knowing, everywhere present. We can't mimic those. Okay, we just have to stand in awe of those of God and His great attributes. 
in terms of um, theologians would call it attributes of his greatness or incommunicable attributes, we can't copy them, or attributes of his goodness, ones we can copy, communicable ones. And, um, and so that's what it means to be made in the image of God. We actually have the capacity to worship, to be creative. Now, we can't actually create from nothing, but we have the capacity to know things, to, um, to love, and so on. Uh, that's what it means to be made in the image of God. This definition includes three aspects. First, personal. We are made in his likeness. We are personal like God is person, personal. Another way to say that is God is a person, right? He is a person. That is, he has a mind, will, and emotions, just like we do. We are made in his image. Animals don't have um, uh, at least emotions, and we could argue whether they have uh a mind like we do, and, and a will, but uh, spiritual. We have the capacity for worship. Um, animals do not have the capacity for worship, right? Uh, moral. We have the ability to determine and choose right from wrong. And so we are much different than the rest of God's creation in this way. We are made in the likeness of God. And so um, there's something... That, that we have here that is consistent, that is, when I say we, I say both male and female have, that we are created in God's image according to these verses. Um, then turn over to Genesis 2, verses 15, uh, yeah, 15 to 24, and here we'll see some more about um, this idea of God creating us. Okay, so I want to start with this idea that, yes, we have a quality when it comes to value and being made in, in God's image, both male and female. But there's a clear distinction between how God uh, expects us and has called us to function. And that's what we see in these verses. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord, ca caused, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into the woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what does this passage teach us about difference in function? Again, egalitarians are saying there are, there are no differences. We all have the same function. But even from the very beginning, we learn several things. First, man was placed in the garden first. Man was commissioned to name the animals the woman was made after man and from the man. And, uh, you know, uh, we could also say she was made for the man. She was a helper suitable for him. Um, further, the woman is described as a, a helper suitable. So that, that would be the idea of that she was made for the man. And then man is charged with naming his suitable 
helper here. He calls her woman in verse 23. Later on, he's going to call her Eve, we learn. Um, so, again, this is a clear um, order. And when we come to the New Testament, I think I'm going to mention this later, but, but Paul actually appeals to this order. He's not saying this is like accidental, just kind of happened. But he's saying that, that the fact that God made the man first and that the, God gave man instructions um, is consistent with God's expectation for difference in function. So, how does egalitarianism contribute to marital conflict? Uh, egalitarians suggest that man over the woman came as a result of the curse. Right? They're going to say, well, you know, the, originally, man and woman are created equally. Again, we agree on that. But they would say both in value, ontology, and in function. That's where we disagree. And they're saying the only reason that there's a problem now is because of the fall. Now the fall has taken this equality that there was between man and woman, and now it's put this man where he wants to take charge and he shouldn't take charge. Um, they would say that, that the reason that there is hierarchy, a man over a woman, is a result of the curse. And therefore, we need to get back to what, this is what egalitarians would say, we need to get back to what it was before the curse. Now turn over to chapter 3 and notice one of the curses that came on mankind because of their sin. So again, we're kind of just fast forwarding through a lot of history that's taking place here with Adam and Eve being deceived and Adam following his wife into sin and Adam essentially bringing death upon all mankind and so on. Um, but we come to the curses and what we want to see here we're trying to respond to this idea that egalitarians are saying uh, this idea of hierarchy came as a result of the curse when in fact um, seems that it only intensified um, the, the relationship that the, the woman had to usurp her husband's authority. Verse 15. Uh, I will put... Uh, so let's start in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, this is an important phrase for us to understand because what it sounds like is that her curse is that she's going to have a desire for her husband. That's not the idea of what's going on. So maybe it'd be helpful um, if we just kind of did a... Um, let's see, where did I... I guess... Yeah, I guess I'm going to do that later. I wonder if I should do that now. Let's do that now and we'll come back. Um... So let's think about the uses of the word desire here in Genesis 3.16. Here are the only times that the Hebrew word, which is translated desire in Genesis 3.16, are used in the Bible. Okay? So first, Song of Solomon 7.10. We're going kind of reverse, actually, just to kind of show you what's going on here. But there, um, the, the wife says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Her idea is... I have this glad assurance that my husband's desire is for me. 
So he has a he has a desire to move towards me. Genesis 4, 7, the very next chapter. Um, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Notice these two words, by the way, that are exactly the same as in Genesis 3.16, which is going to be the text that we're, the text we're trying to understand here. Its desire is for you. This is to, to Cain, God is saying. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The idea here is um, sin's desire is to overpower you. And so you must overpower it. You must rule over it. Its desire is to overpower you. You must um, master it. And so that's the idea of the curse here in Genesis 3.16. Eve, you, and all women, women who follow you, you're going to have a sinful desire to manipulate or control your husband. But you, but, but he is going to master you. He's going to rule over you. So... What God is saying is not, let's just, um, th- this curse, as a result, even though things are equal functionally, um, now we're going to add to it this kind of tension that's going to be there. No, he's saying, um, you're actually going to want to usurp the role that was designed for you, rather than um, to actually embrace the role which was given to you. So what we need to do, I would suggest, is get back to the basics. Um, and um, let's see. Yeah, my, my notes are all out of order here, but we'll just go ahead and go through them. Uh, these are very basic. You might be thinking, why do we even have to say these things? But this is really where it starts. When I'm working with people, um, you know, w- we, we have to often go back to the fundamentals. And that's not like, you know, I need to talk down to you, your elementary student. What's wrong with you? But, but you have to go back to the fundamentals because the nature of deception and the nature of decline tends to be very gradual and very subtle. So what we want to do is highlight the very clear and obvious things that are in the scripture so that each person in their relationship recognize their proper role. So the way that I illustrate this is with the Golden State Warriors. When, when uh, Steve Kerr became the coach back in 2013, 2014, somewhere around there, one of the very first things that he started he started with in training camp was was working on dribbling skills and passing skills. Now, I don't know what it would be like to be one of the most elite athletes in the world, um, but for my coach to tell me that I need to get back to some of the really simple elementary kind of basics that I learned in second grade, it would be it feel a little bit demeaning, right? But he recognized something that they're not going to be as good as they possibly could be unless they are committed to the fundamentals of basketball, right? And sure enough, a couple years later, uh, they won a championship. They won three out of four years, I think. They think they just won last year again. Um, and watching them play is, is exhilarating. You know, next to the Pistons, my favorite team to watch, Golden State Warriors. Um, it's poetry in motion. Everybody on the team, including the bigs, know how to pass the ball. They all know how to dribble. And the ball's constantly moving throughout the 24 seconds so that you, you're, you're, they, they know where each other is going to be on the court. They could not do that if they were not good at dribbling and they were not good at passing. They can't just assume those things. So, again, that's where we start to get ourselves into trouble when we just assume these things. So, first, we need to recognize the Scripture says, we've already seen this, men and women are equal in value. 
Christian men and women are equal in standing before God. This is Galatians 3, right? We, we are equal in standing. There, there is no Jew or Greek, male or female. That's what Paul says. Uh, men and women are not the same biologically, anatomically, or functionally. This is the functionally in terms of roles. That's something that needs to be stated. Um, we have different functions. We're made differently. And God has given us different roles. Um, being equal is not equal to being the same. So what I'm saying there is, you know, just because we are equal in value doesn't mean we're the same across the board. Grant gave the illustration of his commanding officer. It doesn't mean that his commanding officer is more valuable than he is. He just has a different role than him. Just like if you got pulled over on the way back to your home tonight, um, doesn't make the police officer more valuable than you in terms of citizenship. Uh, he just has a different role than you, right? If you were his superior, then would that make you more valuable than him? No. First um, uh, Timothy 2 talks about Adam being created first and then Eve made to be a helper. So when Paul appeals to um, uh, responsibilities in the church and what the woman's, the woman's role is within the church, he appeals to creation. He says, see, Adam was created first. This is why a woman is not to have authority over a man within the body of Christ. Um, so some of the basics. Um, so the uh, somehow I missed a whole set of slides. I think. Let me see. Sorry about this. Yeah. All right. So I guess we'll just go through the order that we have them. Disorderly marriages often come from marriages out of order. Um, and we'll come back to the, uh, yeah, come back to the resolving conflicts. Yeah, no, I think I do need to go through right, right where you have in your notes. This is be Roman numeral two, the power of the word. So let's let's just um, um, consider. I'm not going to have you turn there. It's probably familiar to you. Hebrews four twelve. The word of God is powerful and sharper than any two edged sword, and it is able to pierce through the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, even to the to the to the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. So. If we're going to see change, then we have to have the Word of God. So if, if these roles are messed up, it has to be through the Word, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Again, so simple and so basic. It's like, where's the latest Christian marriage book that I can get? Those, those are helpful. They're as helpful as they are when they, uh, to the extent that they point us to the Scriptures. But often what we do is we're looking for sources that are more indirect in nature. And this one is like the pure honey, you know, rather than something that's a little bit um, disconnected. Again, to the extent that they point you to the word, then that's helpful, just like preaching is helpful, just like hopefully this, this uh, session is helpful. But what we need to recognize is that the word of God is living. The word of God is living. That is... God still speaks. He, he didn't speak one time, and then, you know, we're just reading old stuff. He's still speaking. One of the ways that, um, that this just really struck me, I forget who shared this with me the first time, but I think it's Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. And there the author of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 95. 
And he says, as the Holy Spirit says, present tense. So he's quoting from Psalm 95, some, what, 2,000 years prior? Somebody wrote that a long time ago. I think it was David. So let's say David wrote it. He's saying, as the Holy Spirit once said, now it would be true for him to say that, but he's saying, no, you Jews who are scattered abroad, the Holy Spirit says. So as you read the word of God, this is not God, something he said a long time ago. That is true. But, but it's also what he is still saying today. We don't need anything else um, besides the word. The word is not dead, old, outdated, antiquated. Um, you know, doctors have all sorts of instruments and techniques to penetrate the innermost parts of the body. Psychologists and lawyers are skilled at asking questions to try to penetrate, um, maybe even detectives trying to, inter- to, to penetrate the innermost parts of our thoughts. But neither doctors, nor psychologists, nor lawyers, nor detectives compare to what the Word of God can do to us. It's as if the Word of God is God speaking Himself. Right? It's as if He's right there in the room, and as we read the Word, He is literally speaking to us. Now, certainly there is a distinction between God's Word and God. We don't worship the Word of God, for example. We don't worship the Bible, the scriptures that are in front of us. But the Word of God, as described in scriptures, is so closely connected to God that sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the Word of God and God. Um, and so here's what the Bible does for us. Hebrews 4.12 says, It judges the deep thoughts and motives that we have. As, have you ever experienced that? Where you're like reading something or you're listening to a sermon and you're like, Oh my, that is just for me. That is, how did my pastor know what I was thinking? I mean, was he talking to my wife? Was he talking to somebody in my family that he's like, he, he's talking about the exact issue that I'm dealing with? Uh, or you're just reading through the scriptures and like, man, that's, that is true and necessary. Um, that's the nature of the scripture. Psalm 19, uh, 7 through 11 are really helpful in this way. Um, just talks about the, the, the value of the Word of God, that it restores the soul. Why don't we turn there? It would be helpful just for us to look at this. Um, so we'll get to an answer here with regard to um, conflict resolution and where we go from there. But I think it's really helpful and foundational just to remember the importance of the Word of God. The, the Word of God pierces down to the innermost thoughts and intentions of our hearts, which often we can't even see ourselves um, because we're deceived, Jeremiah 17, 9 says. Um, but here it shows several of the values. So the way that I understand this passage is that the first part of the text in verses 7 through 9 are talking about different ways that we would describe the Word of God. So if you just look down the, the line, like for mine, I have a new line for each. Um, stanza, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. I actually take all those to be referring to the scriptures. Now, there are, is some de- debate about that first one in verse 9, but, but I would suggest that they're all referring to the scriptures. And then it talks about a quality of the word of God. So the law of the Lord is perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. It endures forever. It's true. It's righteous altogether. So that's the way we could describe the word. 
Then notice its value, what it does for us in the last line, uh, the last uh, clause of each line. It restores the soul. So, you know, is someone lagging spiritually? Are they wallowing in spiritual um, infancy? Then do you know what the do you know what is going to bring them life? What's going to revive them? The defibrillator that they need is the word. Um, and so that's what they need. They need the the word. We need the word. Are are we feeling slothful like a three a.m. driver who's driving down the highway and just like trying to keep his eyes awake, or like someone who's just had a big lunch and sitting in the session trying to keep our eyes awake? We need life. You know, and the word of God is the, the thing that actually gives us life. So spiritually, if that's the way we feel, that sloth, you know, we need we need the word of God to revive us. That's what it says it does. It revives the soul. It restores the soul. We need it. And then uh, the next one and in, in the end of verse seven, it makes wise the simple. So another word for simple is naive. The naive one talked about in Proverbs, um, someone that believes everything. And uh, so you want to be grounded in life. You want to avoid being tossed every, every, uh, you know, every way by every wind and wave of doctrine. You need to be grounded in the word. You need people to speak the word to you, speak the truth in love. That's where I uh, drew that from, that being tossed idea from Ephesians 4. Verse 8 says it rejoices the heart. So are you discouraged? Um, are you... Um, you know, are, are you wallowing in spiritual misery, feeling ungrateful? Then the word is what's going to rejoice, give you joy in life. Um, or are you discouraged? Because the, words, the word enlightens the eyes. It encourages the, the discouraged. That's what we need. This word enlightened in verse 8 is the same word that's used of Jonathan when he dipped his staff in the honey and it enlightened his eyes. It, it, it brightened him. It, it revived him. Are you beaten down by the cares of life? Well, God's teaching is what's going to brighten you. It endures forever. Verse 9. Lots of things come and go in our society, but not God's word. And then the end of verse 9. It's righteous altogether. Um, so the word of God is what's going to, to give us life. So let's, let's uh, turn here um, to the role of gender roles in conflict resolution. And look at our first point there, which is letter A. A disorderly marriage often comes from a marriage out of order. Now, we can have a disorderly marriage if one person is, is you know, um, resisting or rebelling against God. Um, so sometimes when I'm working with couples, what I'll see is that, um, actually often when I'm working with couples, it's it's... It starts out with both people pointing the finger at the other person, right? Um, and what I usually tell them is that if both of you are willing to submit to yourself, submit yourself to what God calls you to do, then you're going to have a great marriage. You're going to move towards each other in reconciliation and love. And um, not going to be easy, not, but, but it's going to be a great marriage. But if one of you does it, you're actually going to have a pretty good marriage, um, that if the other person's still resisting, kind of not wanting to follow God, wanting to go their own way, um, still if you, this is Grant, I love what he was, when he was relaying to us the story from Gavin and, and the panel discussion, you know, um, what happens when my wife is unwilling to submit? Or I often hear from the wife, you know, what happens when my 
husband is unwilling to lead in love. Um, well, uh, th there's still lots of hope for you, even if you're willing to to submit yourself to God. Um, you, it's not going to be easy, but but it's it's going to be a good marriage. Um, so, here's what Jay Adams says. Man, I am missing something that I know I typed. So sorry about this. This is. Um, can I blame this on my secretary? <laughs> I don't have a secretary, but um, okay. Here we go. I think this is it. Here we go. Okay. We'll see if we can get back on track here. Almost without exception, we have found in counseling, this is Jay Adams, that when there have been other serious problems in a marriage, there also has been the problem of husband-wife role failure. So no, we got to be careful about making this a broad brush thing and like every marriage problem is a role problem. I don't want to say that because, um, you know, as I've heard uh, in counseling a lot, um, at least in, in what I've, from what I've learned, uh, that if you've seen one problem, you've seen one problem. <laughs> so don't just assume that you know what the answer is just because you've seen one problem. And that's actually not a service to anyone. If someone comes in asking for help and you just automatically assume you know what's going on without actually listening first. But his observation over the course of all of his counseling and maybe his the people that were working with him, um, that almost always it comes from a reversal of roles that the husband becomes passive, expects the wife to lead, or the, the wife tries to usurp the authority of the, the, um, the man. So this is where the back to the basics comes. And then we said different in function doesn't mean uh, unequal in value. So that's there. And then we should have the way out is the way down maybe. All right. Hey, here we go. All right, um, so, so the way out is the way down. So we're going to talk about two things here with regard to our expectations. So whatever, whatever side of the equation that you're on, whether you're a husband or a wife. First, servant leadership for the husband. One of the com common counseling challenges, or if you just want to think discipleship challenges that you're going to encounter when you're dealing with men, is that they are wanting you to convince their wife that they are the head of the home. So if you can just get her in here, I mean, you're her pastor, so why are you not doing that? Can you just convince her that she needs to submit to me? And again, this is where um, the, the problem tends to, to, to balloon, that, that each person is thinking, this is when it's at its worst, by the way, okay? Each person is thinking the problem's on the other side. Right. If you could just give me a better husband, this this is Adam's problem when God said, you know, what happened? Essentially, Adam says it was the wife you gave me. So if I had a better wife, that wouldn't have happened, which when we say that, we're actually saying if I would have had a better God to give me a better wife, this wouldn't have happened. And often that's what's happening on the other side. Right. The wife's looking at the husband and saying, man, where were you? You knew what God told you about this tree, not to eat of it, and you didn't say anything, right? And so when you're there, that's when the conflict's like this. And so what the husband tends to do is he's, we he's reading and memorizing often his wife's mail, which is, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And why wouldn't you do that with joy, right? Why wouldn't you do that? 
Um, he's, he's thinking about what her male is rather than focusing on what his male is, which is husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. First Peter 3, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as a vessel of honor, someone to be respected. Um, what many husbands do, and I have to admit that I have done this on many occasions. I've been married for 23 years. Um, is I turn this indicative in Ephesians that the husband is the head of the wife into an imperative for her, right? You must follow my headship or I must get you to submit, like as if that's one of my priorities. It's not my priority to get my wife to submit, okay? I would love that, that she submits in every way. That's not my priority. That's not what God's called me to do. In other words, um, it's not something that I have the ability to do. Now, I do want to present her as blameless and spotless, like Jesus wants to present the church. So I do want to see her change and grow. And, but when I'm focusing on the problems on her side, that's where I'm getting myself into lots of trouble because there's almost always an implicit justification of my sinfulness rather than an ownership of it. So it's like, well, see how if she were different, then I would be able to serve better. I could lead better. I would do it easily. Now, in an ideal situation, we're both fulfilling our roles well. I'm lovingly leading her. She's joyfully following. But we, we, we get ourselves into trouble when one or both of us get outside of our lane and we especially get ourselves into trouble when we're starting to look at the other person as the main problem. The heart of male headship is actually love for his wife that's marked by service. One author says, We cannot begin this revolution in manners by demanding that the people who owe us respect start showing it. You must respect me. It begins when we start to show respect and honor where we need to show it. When this kind of honor is cultivated, the results are beautiful. They're part of a husband's cultivation of his wife's loveliness and beauty, for which he is responsible. Much has been lost. We're going to have trouble getting back to such cultural standards without some awkwardness. The best place a man can be uh, can begin to recover such consistent charity is in how he treats his wife. So, the self-centered husband is thinking about um, is thinking about what must be done to him or by his wife rather than thinking about how am I contributing to this conflict? Loving leadership is, is about taking responsibility and living selflessly for the sake of his wife. It's constantly seeking to love her, to serve her as he would want to be served, right? Love her as he loves his own body. Um, so whenever... I'm in a position of leadership. I want to use my authority to serve her, not to lord my authority over her. That's the way the Gentiles do it. Matthew 20, right? They're constantly trying to use their positions of authority to push their agenda. Rather than Jesus, I mean, when he comes to the earth, he doesn't do that. He doesn't force people to follow him. He instead, he, he appeals to them. He talks with them. He he challenges them. He is patient with them, right? This is 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 exemplified. It is, 
you know, do it with gentleness. If perhaps God might grant repentance, right? Um, Jesus taught his disciples about loving leadership. Um, so there's lots that we could say about this. Um, there's lots that lots of rabbit trails that we could go to, and maybe we'll get there if we have time for questions here in a minute. Um, with regard to what happens when you have a, an abusive husband or what happens when you have an abusive wife, that's a possibility of seeing that happen. Okay, so that um, there's lots more that we can say, but I need to keep moving. Okay, second, humble submission. So servant leadership and then humble submission for the wife. From the first sin, the desire for the woman to usurp man's authority has been strong. As we looked at in Genesis 3.16, this is part of the curse that would come on her. She's going to want to usurp her husband's authority. She's going to want to take over, to demand, to be the decision maker. Um, you know, I've seen couples where the, the husband stays at home, the wife works, and try to challenge him, like, what is your responsibility within this marriage? Not wrong for your wife to work outside the home, but if there's responsibilities there in the home, then why are you not feeling the obligation to provide for your family rather than to put all the pressure on your wife? And then, of course, when the wife comes home, you know, she's exhausted and, and he's, he's, like, frustrated because she's not um, handling some of these things. Um, so, so humble submission. Submission's not a swear word. Submission is designed by God to bring order to relationships. There is a beautiful picture of submission with Jesus Christ. So that's how we can, we can look at this. We are all called to submit in various areas of our lives. God the Son uh, submitted to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Son and the Father. Um, we are called to submit to our pastors we are called to submit to our government, our governing authorities. Paul calls Roman Christians to submit to governing authorities, writing to the Romans, who at that time, Paul's under the authority of Nero, the emperor, the very man who would take Paul's life, who would order his execution. Paul's saying, submit to them. Now, it doesn't mean wholeheartedly or, you know, just not without thinking. Uh, there's lots of nuance there we got to think about, but um, submission. Um, I would agree with Grant Castleberry's take on the mutual submission thing. I've heard that a lot. You know, we all need to submit to each other. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think what he's saying is we all need to submit to each other. Here's some examples. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, submit to your parents. Slaves, submit to your masters. He's not saying, you know, parents, you need to submit to children. He never says that. Right? He's not saying, husbands, submit to your wives. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. Okay, So we, we might want to take that one verse, I would say, out of context. I know good people disagree on that, so um, I'll just leave that there for you, and you can chew on that as you like. Um, so submission does not also mean, it, it also does not mean like closed mouth and mealy, mealy mouth kind of, oh, I'll just do whatever you want type thing, doormat type of idea. There should be this mutual love and respect that's going on that includes like loving conversations both parties are involved in the decision husband takes final responsibility right when there needs to be initiative taken the husband takes the initiative when there is uh when there is conflict the husband ought to leave in, in reconciliation even if he's not the primary reason for the reconciliation okay um 
this is good to teach children because children are always like, well, I didn't start it. Who started it? That, who cares who started it? Who's, who who's going to be the leader to pursue reconciliation? Husbands are supposed to do that. So conflict resolution is a two-way street. Most often involves two people. Um, I'm going to breeze through this next part and just give you a resource that would probably be helpful for you, and then we'll have a couple more points and we'll be done. Um, conflict resolution is not always possible. Romans 12, 18. As much as it, if possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. So what does that imply? It might not be possible. Let's say we, as a nation, want to reconcile with Afghanistan. Well, it might not be possible. Right? There are several reasons for this. Okay, this is uh, from a series. I commend this to you. I don't know how long ago, but you can find this on Sermon, sermon Audio on Pastor Doran's series on Romans 12. And as I was working through, like just trying to learn this for myself and help other people, I would listen to this series and just took copious notes and tried to take this. This is kind of like my Cliff's notes of my notes, um, which is from his sermon. So sometimes resolution can't happen because of us, right? We can't compromise the truth. We can't be sharers in error of the false teachers. So we don't want just... We don't just want reconciliation for the sake of reconciliation. Why? James 3.17. The wisdom from above is first what? Pure and then peaceable. So it's not peace at all costs. You know, if we want peace at all costs, throw aside the truth, speak error. You know, if I want peace with someone who's, you know, affirming a different gender than the one that God assigned to them, I mean, I'm just going to throw off truth. So I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that in a conflict resolution situation either. I'm not going to say... So sometimes what I've seen is like ladies calling their husbands to apologize for something they didn't do. And they're like, what do I do here? I'm like, well, you can't... You can't you, maybe there's something you don't see. Hopefully you have the humility to say, listen, the fact that you're bringing this up over and over again and suggesting that this is true concerns me. And I want to hear more about this because... If it's so concerning to you, then I want to know about it and be able to, to own it if it's, if it's mine. But if you and your conscience don't see anything, then you shouldn't take responsibility for it. Uh, we can't betray the, certainly we need to do that with humility though. We can't betray the gospel in Christ and we can't tolerate sin. So this is the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. So if the conflict's on our side, at least partially, then we need to examine ourselves. This is Matthew 7, right? This is kind of um, that last point, that letter D down there. We have to examine ourselves first. This is how we handle conflict. It starts with not, hey, I've got this long list of things that I have against you. It is, okay, let me examine myself. See first if I don't have some huge pole sticking out of my eye before I go and approach them on the speck that's in their eye. Now, it's not wrong for me to approach someone with a speck in their eye. I ought to do that. But I first need to examine myself. And then I can go to my brother. That's, that's how the text reads. Okay, we don't have time to turn there, but examine ourselves. The way that Pastor Doran said in his sermon is like, even if you only own, even if you are only responsible for 2% of the problem, you need to own 100% of your 2%. This is, this is often what we're not willing to do, right? We're like, well, wait, they're, they're the, they started it. They're the bigger part of the problem. 
And my 2%, if, if we could quantify it, my 2% are because of them. But that's not how we pursue reconciliation. That's not a genuine way to respond to people. That's really just a way to put more of a burden on them. And often it's not 2%. It's usually a lot more. So the way that I look at it is like a raging fire. There's a fire between us. We know this is a conflict that both of us are a part of. And we're both holding, you know, lighter fluid cans. And we're both squirting some on while the conflict is still raging. And the first thing to do is to put down the lighter fluid cans, okay, before we can put the fire out. But most often we're like, well, look how much lighter fluid they're putting on. You know, um, if we're going to stop a conflict, the first step is actually to stop contributing to the conflict. So um, another Pastor Doranism is if you want to remove a log jam from a river, you need to stop first. You need to stop cutting trees down up the river. This is what both parties are doing, the husband and the wife, right? They're, they're still chopping down trees and they're wondering why, man, we keep clearing this and it keeps getting log jammed up. And so it starts with, this is the humbling and sometimes humiliating part for us, especially when we see ourselves as a smaller part of the problem is to actually own our sin because then we're afraid they're going to use that as a weapon against us, right? Now that they've, they've, now that I, let's say Jacob has owned it, see, that proves that I was in the right. But that's not your responsibility. You're not, your responsibility is not to get them to do something. Your responsibility is to make sure that you are right before God and before that person. And actually, you're going to be in a better position to approach them, to challenge them on the, their part of the problem when you first have owned yours. We must go to the other person who sinned against us. So we can't just assume that they're going to figure it out. Um, if the conflict's on their side, so there actually could be a place in which we are completely innocent, right? Was Jesus ever any, in, in any conflicts? Has God ever been in any, any conflicts? Absolutely. Were they ever the reason for the conflict? Was there any sin that either of those contributed to the conflict? No. So there is a possibility that there could be a conflict that's on the other side. We still first, because we're sinners, we first need to examine ourselves to see if there is anything in us. And then if it is on their side, here's what we need to do. Bless and do not curse, verse 14. Don't retaliate, verse 17. Don't take revenge, verse 18. Don't be captured by evil, verse 21. Desire good for them. Respect what is honorable. Trust God to deal with evil, right? The, the Lord is the avenger, right? Um, do not take vengeance for yourself, um, says the Lord, right? And then serve rather than strike. You, you actually treat them with good. You, the, the temptation is to overcome evil with evil. They've treated me with evil. The only way they're going to recognize it is if I... Help them to feel a little bit of the pain that I've felt. Rather than saying, that's not how Jesus would do it at all. He would respond to their evil with good. Now, the good might be a really blunt, straightforward kind of um, statement, like Pastor Doran was talking about, a gracious way of speaking the truth. But, but, um, but so often we are continually contributing to the problem. If we're going to have um, 
If we're going to have resolution, it's going to be sourced in God. This starts with peace with God. And so um, what I'm encouraging people to do, what I try to do myself, is first to have a, um, a specific confession that I'm making to God. What have I done to you, God, in causing this conflict or contributing to this conflict? And then I can go to the other person. And, and if there's going to be resolution where both parties are at peace rather than at war, then it's going to be because of God. Um, and then finally, um, this kind of overlap from what we've said before, but um, conflict resolution starts with me. Um, so 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty three: For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So I want to um, recognize who's the one who's going to bring about that change and then recognize my responsibility in it. So I'm not going to sit in my hands and go, well, God, you're the res- responsible for peace, so why is peace not coming? I still need to take responsibility for what belongs to me. So let me just finish with some resources and then see if you have any questions. Um, this is really helpful um, for our society as a whole, but uh, The Strange New World or The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is the longer version of this book um, by G- Carl Truman. So I think we have a copy of the, the longer version downstairs. I don't know if we have one of the shorter one, but um, just kind of explains the history. It's not really telling you how to change things, but it's telling you the history of how we became the way that we are as a society. Uh, he calls it expressive individualism. That is, my true self must be expressed, and anyone who tries to suppress it is my enemy. So this happens. Um, so he doesn't talk a ton about this, but but feminism is a big opponent enemy to a godly marriage. Feminism basically is saying that we essentially are equal, and if anything, we should be able to have leadership over, and this is what we're saying is not, not helpful. So Peacemaker is a classic book that I use often. There's so many helpful ones. If you ever heard the seven A's of confession, um, I use those all the time, myself and others in counseling. There's a really helpful chapter on, on that. Um, he also has the what he calls the slippery slope of conflict, which is... Um, I'll just share that with you really quick. You, you might have seen this before, but um, I use this all the time too. Um, peace fakers, peacemakers, and peace breakers. So basically what he's saying is we have a tendency towards one of these two extremes. Uh, this is where we need to be. This is a biblical solution for bringing peace, being a peacemaker, and this includes... Um, confronting sin when necessary, overlooking sin when necessary, uh, negotiation through like some biblical counselors or something like that, um, potentially um, arbitration, something like that. Um, Peace faker is someone who escapes. So this is actually helpful to know where you're at on this spectrum, where you tend to be. Like when conflicts come, do you tend to ignore it, try to escape from it, not address it? Or do you tend to be the one that's going after it verbally, you know, little digs, sarcastic comments. If you know where you're at on that, it's helpful because and tend, we actually tend towards both. Most people do. Um, the ultimate peace faker is self-harm or suicide. Um, and the ultimate peace breaker, when someone will not, cannot get their way, I must have my way, is murder. Right, so that, that again, that, that book is extremely helpful. I don't know if we have that downstairs or not, but 
Pursuing Peace by Robert Jones. Anything you can find by Robert Jones is helpful. He's, he's got a brand new book on counseling that I love. This book is a reference book, Counsel with Confidence. Just any topic that you're dealing with in counseling, um, he's got a really helpful section on the roles of men and women. Um, but, but any other topic, he has a, like three or four pages on it, what text of scripture to look at. 